This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is Beyond Reasonable Doubt. In Durham, North Carolina. On BBC. Radio 5 Live. 5 Live. It is July 2003, and at the Durham County Courthouse, built in 1916 on the city's main street, the jury in the trial of Michael Peterson has finally been sworn in. It has taken six weeks to select the four men and eight women who will serve as the jury on what will become the longest and most expensive case in North Carolina history. It involved some 70 witnesses, 500 pieces of evidence, and took 63 days. It was typical in the sense that um, the players were the same sorts of players, uh, the issues were the same sorts of issues. It was very atypical in how long the case lasted. The battle lines are drawn on the side of Michael Peterson. What happened in that stairway on December 9th was a tragic accident. A tragic accident. Kathleen had had a bit to drink and as she went to bed she had slipped on a narrow wooden staircase originally used by servants at the back of 1810 Cedar Street and had bled to death. As David Rudolph said in the trial, The truth is, Kathleen Peterson, after drinking some wine and some champagne and taking some Valium, tried to walk up a narrow, poorly lit stairway in flip-flops. She fell and bled to death. Why would Michael kill her, reasoned the defence? There was no motive. After all, Michael and Kathleen Peterson were madly in love. Remember we heard from the couple's former neighbours. They seemed to have a very loving relationship. We partied with them Friday night. My company had the annual Christmas party. They were dancing, they were socialising, and... They, they always seemed to be really good chums, in a way. I never saw them arguing or any friction, which doesn't mean there wasn't any. I never witnessed it when they were out in public. They were just out to have a good time, and they were together. They had a good partnership. They fed off each other, both pretty intellectual with word games or they had a lot of fun together and they had a vibrant life i would never have done anything to hurt her i am innocent of these charges and we will prove it in court for the prosecution led by da jim hardin it was a different story the defendant says that kathleen peterson's death was caused by a tragic accidental fall downstairs in their home And we say, on the other hand, that she died a horrible, painful death at the hands of her husband, Michael Peterson. But why? Why would a man of previous good character, a man who ran for mayor, a celebrated author, someone who had adopted two kids after their parents died, who apparently loved Kathleen deeply. Why would he, as the prosecution alleged, snap and beat his wife and make it look like she had had an accident? The prosecution didn't need a motive. If the jury thought that on the evidence presented, Kathleen had either died by accident or she had been killed, it might help to explain, in their view, why. Michael Peterson knew that the amount of money he was bringing in through his writing had plummeted down to next to nothing. 
Diane Fanning, crime writer and author of Written in Blood about the Peterson case. She points out, as others have done, but the French documentary makers didn't, incidentally, that the big mansion on Cedar Street may have given the impression of opulence and wealth, but the reality was different. Without Kathleen's job and her paycheck, he could not continue to support his two adult sons as he had been doing. He could not continue to maintain that home. He could not live the lifestyle he'd grown accustomed to. He needed her money to survive the way he wanted to survive. And when she threatened to take that away from him, she suddenly became worth more to him dead than she was alive. Kathleen worked at Nortel, a Canada-based telecommunications company. She was highly respected and considered to be a big asset to the company. But in the late 90s, speculators hoping that Nortel would reap increasingly lucrative profits from the sale of fibre optic network gear began pushing up the company's share price to unheard of levels, despite the company's repeated failure to turn a profit. When the speculative telecom bubble reached its height late in the year 2000, Nortel was to become a spectacular casualty. In 2001, the company was busy laying off two-thirds of its staff. Both Michael and Kathleen thought she might be about to lose her job too. But let's not forget, Michael was a successful novelist and on the night in question was celebrating a potential movie deal. But compared to Kathleen's income, that was not a big deal. I mean, Kathleen was a very, very brilliant woman. She was the first woman to ever graduate from the Duke School of Engineering. And she was a pace setter for her gender. And she'd been setting that pace in her workplace. I think there were issues in her workplace of job insecurity. And I think, though, that Kathleen had enough faith in her ability that even if there was a short time of unemployment, she would get back on her feet. In an email earlier that month, December 2001, Michael Peterson says... Poor Kathleen is undergoing the tortures of the damned at Nortel. They've laid off 45,000 people. She's a survivor and in no trouble, but the stress is monumental there. According to Candice, Kathleen told her sister... I'm going to stick it out until the bitter end, but I feel like at the end of the year... I will not have a job. The couple had credit card debts of $143,000. In DA Jim Hardin's opinion, the couple were living on plastic. Also, Michael's sons were in debt, and Michael couldn't pay the interest on their loans. He emailed his first wife, Patty, and asked... Let me add a little more to the idea of a home equity loan and the boy's plight. Right now, Clayton is paying about $750 a month in interest on his credit card debt. He'll earn about $1,300 from NC State with his teaching fellowship. His rent is $700 a month plus expenses. He cannot afford to live. Todd is paying probably about $300 a month. Thus, the boys are paying $1,000 a month in interest and not reducing the principal. If you got a home equity loan of $30,000 you'd only have to pay somewhere around $400 a month, even less if you didn't want to reduce the principal. If you could handle that, they could live nicely. 
So Michael is asking his ex-wife to take out a loan to pay their son's debt interest. I honestly think this is the best way to help the boys out because I think they've learned their lesson. Please let me know what you think. It would also be a huge relief off of mine because I'm worried sick about them. It's simply not possible for me to discuss this with Kathleen. Consider this as well, said the prosecution. There was a $1.4 million life insurance policy on Kathleen. She was also the owner of the home, the car, and had $350,000 in pension funds. This wasn't a motive, said defence attorney David Rudolph in court. There was no conflict about Nortel. There was no conflict about her job. There was no conflict about money. There was no conflict about anything. Deputy DA Freda Black told Aphrodite Jones on the Discovery Channel that she was in no doubt money played a part in what happened. Michael Peterson stood to gain a lot of money if the accident theory prevailed. He stood to gain life insurance. There were stock options. There were a number of financial motivations, we believe, that would have caused him to have the motive to kill Kathleen. It was a sign that during the trial, appearances can be deceptive. Then there was another twist, a big one. In an earlier episode, we heard Diane Fanning talking about the night Kathleen died. Remember this? So she went into his room while he was still outside. And normally, that was something she didn't do. That was his inner sanctum. But on this occasion, she did go in there. And it's suspected that she found a lot of information about the other side of Michael's life. So what was the other side of Michael's life? Carry on, Diane. She probably found some of the homosexual pornography in his drawers, and she may have found uh, the fact that he was looking for a male prostitute online. It was revealed that Michael was, in his words, bisexual. He went online and viewed gay porn sites. Now, it has nothing to do with whether he was homosexual, heterosexual or bisexual. To Kathleen, it was the betrayal of the wedding vows. And she'd left her first husband because of an affair with a woman. So this meant just as much to her because she believed in fidelity in a relationship. And she was angry. He was at the time of Kathleen's death in contact with a man called Brad, a 26-year-old escort who had been a soldier. His online picture featured him wearing dog tags. We talked on the phone yesterday and I checked out the website you gave me. You've got great reviews and I'd like to get together with you. Daytime is best for me, Tuesday, Wednesday or Friday. I've never done escort but used to pay to a super macho guy who played lacrosse at NC State. In a later email to Brad, Michael acknowledges the situation. I enjoy your emails also. Evenings aren't great for me anyway. I'm married, very happily married, with a dynamite wife. Yes, I know, I know. I'm very bi, and that's all there is to it. Brad and Michael make an arrangement, but in the end, Brad doesn't go to Durham, and they don't hook up. So what if Michael is bisexual, argued David Rudolph and the defence team? Kathleen knew about it. Michael's brother knew about it. It was an unconventional part of their lives, but didn't stop Michael and Kathleen loving each other. Michael's relationship with Kathleen sort of accepted his bisexuality. It's not something that they talk a lot about, uh, but it was sort of 
understood. We have his word for that. The gay escort who Michael had contacted but never hooked up with testified at the trial that Michael had talked a lot about how much he loved his wife and what a great relationship they had. Indeed, he said it was strange because he'd never been in a situation like that where one of his customers was talking about his wife. Uh, so that sort of, I think, gives you a little bit of insight into what was going on. During the case, Brad was called as a witness. What types of services did you perform? Basically, it's a, a companionship uh, for other males. And did that involve sexual activities? Just about anything under the sun. <laughs> Aphrodite Jones, author of a book about the case called A Perfect Husband, is sure that Kathleen didn't know her husband was bisexual. I would bet my life on it, and therefore she would not be okay with it, and the argument that she found that pornography or emails between Michael and some escort on the night she was killed, that makes sense to me. I spent a lot of time with her daughter, Caitlin Atwater, and I will tell you, Caitlin had not a shred of an inkling that Michael was bisexual, and nor did her sisters. I spent time with Candace. And above all else, remember, Kathleen was the breadwinner there. Kathleen was working 12 and 14 hours a day at Nortel in order to support that mansion that was crumbling. And you mean to tell me that she would be okay with working her fingers to the bone whilst her husband was having trysts with young men? I don't think so. And in her true crime series on Discovery, Aphrodite asked Michael Peterson himself about it. The bisexuality. Bisexuality, right. Okay. Did Kathleen know? Yes, of course she knew. It just was not a major factor uh, in, in our lives. I mean, it had nothing to do with love. People get very upset when you say something like that. There's love, and then there's, there's sex. And that's what that was. I think I, I'm stunned. I think I thought certainly all my children knew. I can't believe that they didn't know. According to the prosecution, on the night Kathleen died, she had gone into Michael's inner sanctum, his study, had found these emails and confronted Michael with them. Then the prosecution claimed Michael acted in anger and killed his wife by hitting her with a metal blow poke. That is a fire poker with a hollow middle, so you can, as the name would suggest, use it to blow into a fire. Right there in the top right-hand drawer to the desk is where these emails between Mr. Peterson and the male escort were. We believe that she found those inside of the desk that night. And confronted Michael. We believe that she confronted him and that he lost his temper at that point. We had established through a lot of people that, that knew them that he had a horrible, violent temper at times, and we believe that he, he lost it. Assistant DA, the formidable Freda Black, talking to Aphrodite Jones. Still, the defence contended that Kathleen knew about Michael and operated a kind of don't-ask-don't-tell policy. Here's an exchange between David Rudolph, acting for Michael, and Brad. Did a number of the married men who you had sexual relations with have wives who knew they were bisexual? Most of them did, from my experience. In your experience, was it unusual for a wife married to a bisexual man to know that he was bisexual? Not at all. Did Michael Peterson ever do or say anything, either on a phone or in an email, that indicated that he was not in love with Kathleen Peterson? 
To the contrary, in his emails, unlike most of my clients, he indicated that he had a great relationship. Most clients don't want to say anything about the relationship. He indicated he had a warm relationship with his wife and nothing would ever destroy that. Later, David Rudolph reinforced his argument. If it was such a big secret, why was Michael using the home phone to talk to Brad? Some people, including the French director, Monsieur Lestrade, have argued that this evidence damaged Michael, but had nothing to do with the case. They couldn't imagine that Michael and Kathleen could live a happy life and be a happy couple, with Michael having some gay encounters. To them, that was unbelievable. It was out of their minds. They're very narrow-minded. You know, I think it was, a, it was a problem in Durham in 2003. Things about sexuality and uh, bisexuality and homosexuality and transgender. It's a different world uh, 13 years later. This is Beyond Reasonable Doubt. In Durham, North Carolina. On BBC. Radio 5 Live. 5 Live. The prosecution are claiming that Michael had money problems and that he was leading a double bisexual life, and these may have been motives for murder, and that Kathleen's death was not an accident. In my experience with uh, dealing with killers, when they get away with something once, they usually employ the same method or a similar method to get away with it again. Now, remember I told you about the family setup at 1810 Cedar Street? Michael, Kathleen, of course, and Michael's two sons from his first marriage, Todd and Clayton, and Kathleen's daughter from her first marriage, Caitlin. Also there, Margaret and Martha Ratliff. They had been unofficially adopted by Michael after their parents died, while the Petersons and the Ratliffs were living in Germany. The orphaned girls called Michael dad. Their biological father, George E. Ratliff, was a captain in the United States Air Force and was from Bay City, Texas. He dies aged just 34 in Panama of heart failure while working on plans for the US invasion of Grenada. There is still some mystery as to how he died. His wife, Liz, was devastated by his death. According to her sister, she lost the love of her life. They had been married just two years earlier. Liz was born Elizabeth McKee in Rhode Island and was one of three sisters who grew up on a farm. She was artistic, musical and gifted at languages and spent 17 years teaching the children of military families. Two years later, Liz was dead too at the age of 43. Elizabeth Ratliff's death in Germany. I think everyone became so fascinated with that. That's Julia Sims from WRAL, who covered this case from the start. Here is another woman 20 years prior. Michael Peterson was the last person to see her alive, just like his wife Kathleen. If you see the pictures of Elizabeth Ratliff and Kathleen Peterson side by side, they look like they could be twins. So Liz Ratliff died at the foot of a staircase, a wooden staircase, at her home in Germany. Michael Peterson was the last to see her alive. That means nothing, says Michael's first wife, Patty. Pure, sad coincidence. Liz died from natural causes. The authorities decided that a cerebral hemorrhage caused her to fall and strike her head. In fact, a friend of Liz Ratliff remembers she had been troubled with headaches in the weeks before her death and had arranged to see a doctor. 
the person who discovered Liz at the bottom of her stairs was Barbara the nanny from Ireland. She came running up to our village home from about here to about midway right there. Patty, come quickly, come quickly. I raced back to the home before her. I saw her there. She had fallen down the steps. The German, then I informed Michael, the German authorities were called, the Polizei. The American authorities were called, including all of the medical doctors. From here to here, I witnessed when the medical doctor took a spinal tap. I saw that. It was confirmed that she died of a a cerebral hemorrhage. I speak German. I I learned it over there. Uh, I was there the entire time from the moment of discovery, perhaps 8 in the morning, 7.38 in the morning, the moment the day she died, until every single official from both governments departed. When I walk in the house, the first thing I see was Michael standing at the bottom of the stairs. My immediate feeling was there's something wrong here. There's really something wrong. That's a friend of Liz Ratliff's, Amy Beth Burner. When George Ratliff died, Elizabeth Ratliff was given $250,000 in insurance money. And who was handling that money for her? Michael. So she specifically told me that she had that money, that she didn't want to touch it, that was put away for the girls' schooling. What is your theory about what happened on the night that Elizabeth was killed? I think she questioned him where her money was. And my hunch is that he probably took that money and had moved that money, and Liz questioned him, and that that enraged him. So if there were doubts about Liz Ratliff's death, why was nothing done at the time? One of the things that was interesting about Elizabeth Ratliff's death, first of all, she was getting hang-up calls right before she died or was killed, and she was frightened by these calls. Somebody was kind of preparing, stalking, uh, frightening her, and setting up the notion that uh, somebody was after her, a stranger. A couple of things that that stood out. Elizabeth Ratliff was wearing her boots when she was found at the bottom of the stairs. Why is that important? Because she never wore the boots in the house. She was one of those to take them off, to not dirty up her house, which this means that she either was running away from someone or had been followed into the house, okay? Number two, there's blood in that stairwell, droplets of blood, blood spatter, up all the way to the top of the stairs. Now, had she fallen and there was quote unquote no blood as Peterson claims, what was this blood spatter doing all the way to the top of the stairs? And her friend, Amy Beth Berner, went up and took a look at it and was very concerned that this was a murder. Now, it turns out, and what the jury would learn that people don't know, is that Amy Beth Berner had been, was pregnant at the time that Elizabeth was found dead, and she had had a number of miscarriages. So her husband suggested she not go to the authorities with this, that the authorities would take care of it because it looked like a crime scene to them, and that, you know, rather than upset herself and, and risk another miscarriage, let the police handle it. Well, unfortunately, it wasn't handled. They felt for sure that the police would see clearly through this murder scene and would process it, but it didn't happen. The prosecution during Michael Peterson's trial wanted this case put before the jury on the grounds that, well, 
even 17 years apart, as crime writer Diane Fanning puts it. Lightning doesn't strike twice. There was something about this so-called coincidence that didn't feel coincidental. And it raised the hair on the back of my neck. This shouldn't be. Things like this just don't happen in real life. And the medical examiner felt the same way. Deborah Radish had that body exhumed from its gravesite in Texas. And the markings on the back of that woman's skull were so similar to the ones on Kathleen's skull that it was scary. I don't think that there is any doubt in people's minds, if they could look at those pictures objectively, that they have to consider the possibility that Liz Ratliff was Michael Peterson's first victim. It was a red herring, uh, but it was a very effective red herring. Michael Peterson's defence counsel, David Rudolph, thought the suggestion that the two deaths were connected was just nonsense. Because what we heard over and over again is, oh, how could this be just a coincidence? Well, let me turn it around. Is, is someone, has Michael Peterson somehow figured out a way to kill women via staircases? I mean, does that even make any sense? If you happen to be on the beach on two separate occasions, 18 years apart, and somebody drowns on each occasion, and you happen to be on the beach, does that make you guilty of the drowning? I don't think so. But it had a very surface, superficial appeal. And we've seen with the uh, American presidential election how surface, superficial appeals can work. Nevertheless, an application was made to exhume Liz Ratliff's body from her grave in Bay City, Texas. The motion was granted after both Ratliff girls agreed, albeit reluctantly. They wrote to Jim Hard in the DA and told him what they thought of the decision. We are horrified by your choice of action and utter disregard for the deceased. We want to convey our feelings of distress on this matter. We merely ask for your respect. However, seeing that you have no compassion for the memory of our mother, we reluctantly agree to consent in regards to your request to exhume our mother's body. The pain and anguish that you are causing our father and us is The body was driven 1,250 miles. That's 18 hours driving time in a hearse from Texas to North Carolina so that Liz Ratliff could be given an autopsy by Dr Deborah Radish, the same pathologist who had decided that Kathleen Peterson had died from a beating, not an accident. It may seem a little macabre to drive the body uh, that far, but... I think it was normal course of business. That's Tom Gasparoli. Gaspo, to listeners of Beyond Reasonable Doubt, the columnist who broke the story about Michael Peterson's connection to Liz Ratliff all those years ago in Germany. The more challenging thing was getting the judge's permission to assume her and the emotional toll that that would take on her daughters and her family, and then the power that that might have in the case, depending on what was found. So, yeah, they got the approval, and then they needed to get the body to Chapel Hill, like what you do with bodies in suspicious death. Couldn't a pathologist in Texas have examined Liz Ratliff's body and saved the huge drive? Well, not according to Diane Fanning. I think it was necessary because it was, just as you were talking about seeing videos 
and photographs of the Peterson house. You got a sense of it, but you didn't get the whole feel of it. It's the same with bodies. You can look at autopsy reports, you can look at photographs, and you can get a sense of similarity. But there's nothing like having the two essentially being handled by the same person who can compare it in a more intimate and total picture way than if it was done by a separate individual. The result when it came back was damning for the Michael Peterson defense team. In my opinion, the manner of death in Mrs. Ratliff's case was homicide. Ms. Ratliff's death was never considered to be a homicide. It was always considered to be an accident. But frankly, it was never investigated. So we wanted the jury to understand clearly what had happened uh, in Germany. The opinion was clear. Not only was it death on a staircase, but the number of lacerations on the skulls of the two women were the same. In an odd and bizarre coincidence, the same poster of a black cat, which was at the foot of the Peterson staircase, was also displayed in the Ratliff house. The Ratliff connection was deemed by Judge Orlando Hudson to be admissible in court, and the jury should hear about it. The judge told Aphrodite Jones's true crime program on the Discovery Channel about that decision. This showed a pattern of behavior. This was a specific act that was ex almost identical to what he was being tried for here. The state just can't introduce any kind of evidence. They have to show how it's tailored to the crime that the defendant is presently on trial. And that's what we spent a lot of time doing in order to get that uh, evidence of the murder in Germany into evidence. Two deaths, 17 years apart, both women who seemingly fell down wooden staircases. Michael Peterson himself spoke to Aphrodite on the same discovery program. What did happen in Germany? You mean what happened the night that Liz Ratliff McKean died? Yes. Okay. At no time ever, ever, ever was there any question, talk, suspicion, anything about this being other than a natural death. Uh, the German police didn't see any. The American police didn't see any. The doctor didn't see any. Why didn't somebody say something at the time? Where, where, why didn't they say, oh my God, this is a, oh, this is a suspicious death. But nobody ever, ever raised this until, you know, Kathleen died. Sometimes it's very subconscious. But here was Michael Peterson. If he did kill Liz Ratliff, as I believe he did, then he got away with it. 16 years he got away with it. No one pointing the finger at him. He completely pulled it off. So in a moment of rage, his subconscious mind would direct him to duplicate the crime since that was so successful. He got away with murder before. Why not again? Next time, blood is thicker than water. This is Beyond Reasonable Doubt. In Durham, North Carolina. On BBC. Radio 5 Live. 5 Live. I'm Chris Warburton, and this is Beyond Reasonable Doubt, a Wise Buddha production for BBC Radio 5 Live.